Hey, fellas, can I get you another one? Uh, no, we're, no, we're good, thanks. Oh, that was such a long time ago. <laughs> I'm trying to forget it. Oh, I'm sorry, brother. I never want to forget that Christmas party. <laughs> Bob's rendition of Santa Baby is the best I've ever seen. I know, right? <laughs> that falsetto? I mean, come on. Painful. But you wanted to talk to me about something. Yeah, I mean, um, we worked together a long time, and um, you said if uh, anything highly sensitive ever came to me in HR, that I should contact the CEO and talk to him personally. So I'm here. Yes, I did say that, mm -hmm. and I meant it. What's going on, Nathan? Well, I mean, this company's your baby, Dave, and um, you know how vital it is for us to have a family-friendly face. Of course. What's up? Someone on our management team is engaged in an affair. And um, they're in a position of leadership. And I'm concerned about how to proceed. Is this with another employee? No, 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 outside the company. Uh, but he has a family. And it's known. I don't like it. I don't like it at all. I know. And so. Not in my management team. I don't want this to get out and ruin our reputation. Okay, so um, do I just slap this guy on the wrist, give him probation? I mean, do I fire him? I just don't want this to cause us any trouble. I know. I was just thinking, hey, if it's a one-time thing. You sure? Yeah. Dust him. David? You are that man. You, you, you said it was known? By me, yes. I know you think this can go away quietly, but I don't think that can happen. I blew it. Yeah. Your decision put a stain on this company. What are you going to do to lift it? Call Barry. Get the board together. I have to make this right. All right, make that call. Second Samuel 12. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town. One was rich and the other was poor. 
The rich man had a large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are that man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hands of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, this passage and this picture cuts us deep to our hearts because so many of us know that we are that man. We are that woman. We are the one who has dealt treacherously and wrongly and sinfully and tried to cover it up and rationalize and hide our sin away, hoping we can make it better. And yet tonight we realize that our sin is known. You know. We know. And as much as we try to hide our sin and create this good front around us we confess to you that our sin eats us alive and we can't run from it and some of us long for that freedom that we sang about tonight and yet we don't have it because we're in bondage to the sin that drags us down we pray that you would break our chains that you would drag our sin into the light so that you might take it away You tell us as far as the east is from the west, that's how far you've removed our sins from us. We pray that you would do that, that our sins would be cast into the sea and never come back. That you would give us the courage to take our sin and expose it to you so that you can deal mercifully and justly and graciously with us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There's nothing more terrifying than having our sin exposed. 
It starts from a young age. Today I was uh, at home with my kids and my six-year-old was supposed to be taking a nap time by himself. He was up in our room on our bed and what was supposed to be happening was he was supposed to be sleeping or at least just laying silently so we could get some peace and quiet. And I go up into the room and all of a sudden he just like flops on the bed and he's laying there. I'm like, Carter, what are you doing? He's like, no, I was just resting. And as I got closer, I noticed the glow of an iPad light coming from out underneath his stomach. That he had. I said, are you playing on the iPad? He's like, no. Like, what is this under your stomach? He's like, oh, no, yeah, uh, six years old. I must have taught him how to do this. So I was just, I was just looking at the time. So then how come your Lego builder game is open right now? He's like, I don't know. I, I hit the circle button. I went like this, and it was there. I said, Carter, did you take the iPad out and open the Lego game so that you could play it? He's like, no. I said, are you lying to me? He's like, no, I was just checking the time. I don't know who taught him how to do that. But for some reason, his fear was the same as my fear. That if his sin was exposed, all heck would break loose. That if the world or if his dad or if anyone really knew what he was doing when he shouldn't be doing it, he would be ruined. And so he made up stories. And he tried to believe him himself. I think he might have started believing the fact that he was just checking the time on the iPad. All to cover up the fact that He's doing something wrong. And we will go to great lengths to make sure that our sin is not found out, won't we? The David, if you know the David and Bathsheba story, David was doing so well. When you read 2 Samuel, he is this amazing king. He's extending mercy. He's conquering his enemies. He's leading his people. And then one day he stands on his balcony and he looks over at his neighbor's house. And Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, is bathing on the roof. And his heart fills with lust and longing for this woman. So David abuses his power. He sends some folks over to her house to go and fetch her. And they bring her back into the palace. And he sleeps with Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. And sinning against Bathsheba and sinning against Uriah. And sends her back home. Until he receives word that she's pregnant. And Uriah has been out at war for some time. And David's heart starts to beat as he realizes that it's going to come back on him. And so he thinks quickly. He wants to cover this up. This can't get out. And so he brings Uriah home as quickly as possible, gets him drunk and says, Uriah, I just wanted to say you are an amazing soldier. Go spend the night with your wife tonight. Who knows she might get pregnant? But Uriah is an honorable man. He says, I'm not going to go sleep with my wife while all my countrymen are out on the battlefield. And so he sleeps on his porch. The next night, David tries it again to no avail. Uriah won't go into his house. He won't visit his wife because he has honor. So David sends him back to the battle and sends a note that says, when Uriah is on the battlefield, put him in the front, pull back the troops, and watch him die. So the commander lets Uriah die at the hand of the Ammonites sends word back to David 
Uriah is dead. And in a genius maneuver, David tells Bathsheba, your husband's been killed at battle. And she mourns for her husband until the gracious king David says, why don't you come live in the palace with me? You could be my wife now and I will take care of you. And who knows, maybe the king in his graciousness as he brings this woman in will be blessed with a baby. And all will speak of the gracious king David who saved Bathsheba from being a widow. And David had done a such a good job of covering up his sins so that no one would find out. And we do a good job of covering up our sins so that no one will find out. But David had a problem that we have too. There's one who knows. The end of 2 Samuel, when that David and Bathsheba story hits the fan, it says, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. He covered it up in front of his countrymen. He fooled everyone except for Bathsheba, probably. But David didn't feel, David didn't fool the Lord. It's so tiring to cover up our sin. Try to make it so no one knows what we really do when the door is locked or what we really do when we say we're going to work or what we really do when we get home from work, what we really do when we say we have a meeting or whatever it is. And we try to hide it. We build these systems and keep up with the stories. And sometimes we can do that. We can keep it hidden from people we love and people we know. And the world thinks we've got it all together, but we've got a secret but the Lord knows. And the Lord didn't let David keep his secret under wraps. Once David thought he had fooled everyone, but the Lord wasn't fooled. Verse one of this chapter says, the Lord sent the prophet Nathan to talk to David. And we saw it here. The prophet shows up at David's house and says, David, I have something I need to tell you, what's going on in your country. And he tells him that story of a man, a rich man who had everything, and yet he stole the loving, uh, the sheep out of the loving arms of a master and took it and killed it and fed it to someone. Ever wonder why Nathan shares this in a story? Why wouldn't he just be direct? Why wouldn't he knock on David's door and say, David, um, God told me about Bathsheba, you know? Hey, David, um, I was praying this morning, and God revealed to me that you slept with your neighbor's wife, tried to get him to sleep with her, and it didn't work, so you killed him, and then you stole her, and you tried to look like the hero. What were you doing? He doesn't do that. He tells him a story. What would you do if you were in sin and someone tried to confront you of it? Have you ever been confronted with something? You know that feeling you get? Where your mind is scrambling, like, how do I get out of this right away? Someone comes to David and says, David, I know about Bathsheba. What did David do to everyone else who got in his way? He killed them. David was on a rampage trying to do whatever he could to stop this sin from coming out. And the, the things that he did got worse and worse and worse. Adultery, deception, murder, and then trying to make himself look righteous. Sins in escalation. What would happen if the prophet showed up and said, there's one last person who knows? Based on what David has done so far, David would say, then there's one more person I need to take care of. 
Nathan can't just come to David and say, here's what's going on, because David is on the offensive. Nathan could have told David a story that was a little more similar to his situation. And David didn't technically steal a sheep from anyone. He slept with a woman. He could have said, David, uh, kind of like what we saw here today. David, here's what's going on. There's a man in your country who even though he had everything, he stole his neighbor's wife, slept with her, and then killed him. He could have said that. But again, when we're confronted of things, it's really easy to just put our guard up. Now, luckily, this one turned out the way that it did. Or David was cut to the heart and said, I need to make this right. A lot of times when we get confronted of our, of our sins, we come back to the people and we say, listen, it's complicated. I, I get it. Yeah, it seems black and white to you, but I'm living it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I could just come clean. You know what that'll do to my family? You know what that'll do to my reputation? You know that I'll lose my job if I bring that up? You want my children to go hungry? You understand that it's not as black and white as you Christian person thinks that it is. My life is messy and I'm trying the best that I can. And when we're in sin, we are like master rationalizers. You notice that? And sometimes you get caught in something and you feel that guilt and that shame that I, I feel like I'm the only person in the world who struggles with this. And there's this like humility and terrible feeling there. And then you keep engaging with it and keep engaging with it and keep engaging with it. And some point over the course of your sin, you start feeling less like you're the only person who does it and more like, well, everyone does this. You start out looking at pornography and you say, wow, I feel so isolated and alone. I can't believe I'm a Christian. I look at pornography. And then you look back, now it's two years down the road and you're saying, well, it's not that big a deal. I know everyone does. How does that happen? We rationalize and rationalize and rationalize. I was hanging out with a guy one time doing a seminar, this Christian leader. And at every opportunity, he kept bringing up polygamy. I'm like, why are you bringing up polygamy? This is not a seminar on polygamy. He's like, hey, let's just do a little devil's advocate here. Uh, I bet you I can prove to you from scripture that there's nothing wrong with polygamy. I'm like, what? Why would you want to do that? And he was like fixated on this polygamy thing. He kept talking about how, you know, in the Old Testament, people had multiple wives. And, and really, when you think about it, you know, anyone that you sleep with is kind of your wife. And so, you know, there's nothing really wrong with polygamy. And we're like trying to argue back with him. And finally, people are kind of saying, let's get on with the seminar. Why do you keep bringing up polygamy? And then the next morning, I walked past his computer, and in his, uh, like, Google search, it said, how to tell your spouse you're having an affair. I realized that this guy has been sleeping with some lady, and in his mind, he's been trying to rationalize his way out of it, saying, no, no, I'm technically married to my wife, and I'm married to this other woman, and, you know, they don't need to know about each other, you know? It's in the Bible. It's polygamy. It sounds so crazy to us. But when we're in it, crazy makes sense. I can't tell my wife about this. You know what will happen? And everyone you talk to just looks at you and says, like, you've got to tell your wife, man. Like, oh, my husband can't find out about what I'm doing with the money or whatever it is. And like, you have to tell your husband. That sounds crazy. Do you know that sounds crazy how you're talking? But it doesn't sound crazy to you because your mind has been warped by your sin and you're convinced that if it came out, you'd be ruined and the best that you can do is keep it covered and make it look like you've got it all together. David hears this story about this little lamb. You know the beautiful thing about stories is 
Stories sound like this little cute subjective thing. But I really believe that sometimes stories are the only way that you can look at reality objectively. The only way for David to really remove himself from the situation is if it's not even about human beings anymore. Now we can look at how crazy and sinful and terrible what he was doing. And David hears this story about the sheep that was stolen and slaughtered, and he gets filled with this anger about this man who had everything, who would steal from someone who had nothing and kill it. And his heart is filled with rage against this man. And when Nathan says, what should we do with this man? David says, if the Lord lives, if God is real, and we follow him, this man needs to die. That seems a little harsh. He just took an animal from someone else. When you read Nathan's story, it's not really about the sheep. It's about the emotion behind the sheep. You hear the details. This man had just one little lamb, and he raised it from a baby, and he took it into his home, and his kids fed it, and it slept in their bed with the family, and it was like this little, it was like a daughter in his family. That's how much he loved the sheep. So it wasn't really about the law that one guy stole an animal from another guy's property. It was about this sinister man who was so jaded and so bitter and so sinful and so blinded that even though he had everything, he would take something so special that belonged to someone else and destroy it. And David didn't know he was talking about the marriage between Uriah and Bathsheba, that he would take it and destroy it. He didn't know he's talking about Bathsheba's purity and take it and destroy it, or Uriah's life and take it and destroy it. He just thought, there's a woman I want to sleep with, and I'm the king, so I can do what I want. But when David hears just how sinister the heart of the man who would do such a thing is, he realizes there's something wrong with that guy. He needs to die. I know people who have walked through different sin areas and been freed from that sin when they realized just how grave their sin really was. I've talked to people who used to be addicted to pornography who said, you know, the thing that finally like took me over the edge and brought me away from that stuff is I realized that I'm lusting over these girls that are someone's daughter or someone's wife or someone's sister or just a human being in general and I'm treating them like they're some object for my pleasure and I'm just this person what am I doing and the lights kind of came on and they came clean and they walked away because they realized that this wasn't just the problem with their finger clicking on stuff there was something wrong in their hearts that they would want something like that and Nathan gave David an opportunity to kind of see his heart in a mirror and when David saw his heart he said a person with a heart like that is a person who is not fit to live And then when Nathan heard David say that, he says the phrase that echoes in our minds every time we read this passage. David, you're that man. You're the guy who who stole from his neighbor. You're the guy who had no concern about something so precious, and so you took it. You're the guy who didn't care about anything except for yourself, and so you ruined the lives of many people because you You wanted sex with your neighbor. And you destroyed people 
and you killed people. And then you took the credit for being a good guy. What's wrong with you? It's you. So now David had the choice. He can rationalize his way then. He can say, listen, you don't know what you're talking about. He can say, listen, where's the proof? He can say, Nathan, you know what? I'm the king, and sometimes it's hard to be the king. Nathan, do you know how much pressure I'm under? Nathan, you can't let this get out. I'm dealing with it. Nathan, don't tell anyone. Me and you can talk about this. Be my accountability partner. He could have said anything. But David's saving grace is that his response to this accusation was, I've sinned against the Lord. He realizes that the one that he sinned against was the God of the heavens and the earth. And if he knew, he was done. Sometimes we're so blinded by our sin that we forget that there's one who knows. And while we're trying to cover it up, it's almost like we feel like if I can just fix this thing and then come back to God, it'll be like nothing ever happened. If I could just fix this thing and then come back to my wife and say, hey, just so you know, like 20 years ago I had an affair and I dealt with it. That seems a lot better than saying, hey, 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 honey, I had an affair a couple weeks ago and I got to let you know I'm not going to do it again. Because there's no track record there. So we think, you know, if we can just kind of get our ducks in a row and then re-engage with the people we love or with the God that we love, they will see that we've earned it and we meant it and it'll be better. That's not how God works. Because you can't fool God while you're fooling around and trying to make things better. God sits in heaven. He says, just come to me and we can walk through this together. I know what's going on. So stop hiding the iPad. Let it out and tell me what's going on. I'm looking at my son today and I'm thinking, you know, if you just said I was playing on the iPad, I was going to say, well, go for it. At least you're being quiet. But now you're lying and making stuff up and now you got to be in trouble because you won't just tell me the truth. I knew the whole time he was lying, and yet he thought that he could fool me. Isn't that how we deal with God? God knows we're lying, and yet we keep coming to God and saying, God, I know I did that thing again, and I'm so sorry. And you know, it only happened that one time, and it's probably not going to happen again, and I'm working really hard. God's not fooled. He knows you're messed up, and he wants to help you. So let him. Don't run away from him. Don't show him you can fix it, because you know what? You can't fix it. You just keep spiraling and spiraling and spiraling deeper into this stuff and just saying, God, just trust me, I'm going to fix it, 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 while you drift away. God says, if you confess your sin, I'm faithful, I'm just, I will forgive your sins and I will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Let's confess it. Bring it out. Drag the sin into the light and so the Father can grab it and throw it away. The only thing you gain by hiding your sin is a life that grows increasingly more complicated and destitute and lonely. That's it. Our biggest fear is that if we brought this stuff out, people are going to reject us. You ever met someone who's confessed their sin and walked through it? They're not someone that no one wants to spend time with. There's something amazingly humble and attractive about someone who's honest with what they've gone through. Some of the most amazing people I know are recovering addicts who have finally hit rock bottom and have learned they don't have it all together, and so now they're humble unlike me. They're humble unlike most of us because they're real, and they say, this is what I deal with. Here's my story. 
I'm me. You still want to be friends? And I think, yes, that's refreshing. The biggest lie of Satan is telling us that if we can cover up our sin, we'll be fine. Because the core of the gospel is that if we unload our sin, then we'll be fine. David deserves to die, and he confesses his sin, and Nathan says, you're not going to die. But there will be consequences. David, your son's going to die. David, the sword is never going to depart from your household. David, what you did to Uriah, someone's going to do to you. And if you read through the book of 2 Samuel, all those things happen. But you know what? David faces those things like a champ. He hears that his son's going to die, and he hits his knees, and he prays, and he prays, and he prays. And the attendants come in and say, are you okay? He's like, I'm praying for my son. I want him to live. And David's heart is, who knows? Maybe the Lord will have mercy on this boy like he had mercy on me, and he will be healed. And then David receives word that his son is dead, and he gets up and dusts himself off. And he steps back into life again. And the servants say, how can you do that? You were so destitute. He said, I I was praying and I was fasting that God might spare this kid's life, and he didn't. And then he starts moving on. And a sword enters his household. And his kids try to dethrone him. And his son takes all of his wives and concubines and sleeps with them on the roof of his palace. And yet through all that mess, David is known as a man who is after God's own heart. David is known as a man of character. David is known as a man who extends mercy on people. David is known as a man who won't hurl insults at his enemies because maybe the Lord is using his enemies to humble him. You know where he learned that? Through his confession and sin. There's this big lie out there that if you're a Christian, you're not going to sin. You're going to sin. And some of you, and sometimes you're going to sin terribly. But when you sin, you can either live in your sin and drift away from God and be miserable and feel like a martyr. Or you can realize that there is one who was a martyr, who died for your sin, and rose from the grave to give you new life, and you can accept his forgiveness and flow into forgiveness and life. Those are your choices. And the road towards life is hard. It's hard to see your child die. It's hard to see a sword in your own household. It's hard to see your son rebel against you. It's hard to hear God tell you that you can't build his temple because there was too much war in your kingdom. It's hard to face the consequences of your sin, but it's better than hiding your sin and living alone and being lonely and destitute and broken forever. When God sends Nathan to David, he does that because he's merciful. Because if God didn't send Nathan to David, the trajectory David was on was a very dangerous trajectory. And God knew that he needed to take David's sin and throw it up on this wall so that David could look at it and be healed and start to walk in freedom again. On one hand, there's nothing scarier than having your sin being exposed. But it's one of those scary things that brings freedom. And tonight as we take communion, that's, that's what communion's for, is to remember that there's one who paid the price for our sins, that we don't have to beat ourselves up for our sin because there's one who was beat up for our sin, that we don't have to get better and not sin because there was one who did not sin.
that we don't have to get our act together because there was one who died and rose on our behalf. And so tonight, if you've got sin in your life, confess it to the Lord. Confess it to the ones you've sinned against, but be like David and realize that primarily there is one that you've sinned against. Confess it to him, find that forgiveness, and then come take communion. And as you eat this bread, remember that Jesus' body was given for you on the cross. Remember that his blood was poured out, the blood of a new covenant, a covenant where you don't have to earn God's forgiveness, but you have it. You just take it and drink it and walk out of this room in newness of life and go do the right thing. Deal with your stuff honestly. Confess your sin like a Christian. That's what they do. Because Christians sin, and then Christians get forgiven, and then Christians find freedom. Let's pray, and then let's take communion. Father, sometimes we feel like uh, the idea of Jesus breaking our chains means that you free us from doing bad things, and we pray that you would. But help us to realize tonight that one of the ways you break our chains is you drag our sin into the light so that we can see it and others can see it, and so it can shoot up into space and be gone. We thank you that you sent your son to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. That he rose from the grave to give us new life. Help us to receive that new life by taking our sins and placing it on him. That's what we did when he died for us. Let us do that consciously by bringing our sins to Jesus and finding forgiveness. Lord, if we've wronged one another, let us ask forgiveness from one another. We think of Psalm 51 when David reflects on this experience with Bathsheba and says, against you and only against you have I sinned. A broken heart and a contrite spirit you have yet to deny. Pray that we come to you today with broken hearts and humble spirits. Pray that you would receive us. We thank you that because of Jesus, we know that you will. And as we walk down that path towards the hard life of reconciliation and facing the music of what we've done, we pray that that path would bring us freedom and humility and perspective and that the gospel would take root and grow in our lives so that the world around us would see that we're not perfect, but you are. And you're transforming us day by day one moment at a time, one confession at a time, one choice, right or wrong, at a time, into the image of your son, Jesus, who someday will come back and make us perfect and rule and reign alongside us forever and ever. We pray these things in his name. Amen.